Ever wanted to build an app or a piece of software? No matter whether you are a startup, scale-up or enterprise, then you can't miss my discussion with Mick Byrne, co-founder and owner of We Make Apps. Mick is a developer who has spent over a decade running his business, We Make Apps. His clients include incredible brands and government. Together, they have developed and released all manner of incredible apps. I asked Mick all the questions you would like to ask an app developer, especially the pitfalls, including this gem where Mick articulates the problem within the software industry. He points out that software development doesn't have the same kind of regulations that you get in construction and manufacturing. Therefore, if you engage a company to build your app and they get 80% there and walk away, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. So how do you know if someone does a good job? As Mick says, just ask their previous clients. Importantly, Mick frames the way you should look at apps when he says, the actual logistics of getting your software into the hands of users, that's a solved problem. Getting your apps noticed and getting past the marketing barriers, that is the current problem. You want to make an app? You want to learn about software creation? Then this discussion with Mick Byrne is vital listening. Enjoy. Mick Byrne, co-founder and owner of We Make Apps. Welcome to Discipline. Good to be here. Now, I'm going to declare my hand right up front here. Um, I'm secretly in love with development and developers, uh, and computer code makes me legitimately excited. I used to code BASIC on my Commodore 128 when I was a kid, and I fell in love with the problem solving then. So I've got a deep respect for what you do. And now that I've got the love out of the way, were you interested in tech and code as, as a kid? Yes, yes. I uh, we I actually the first programming code I wrote. You used to go to a shop and you would buy a book with the code printed in it, and then you'd come home and you'd transcribe it into your uh, what was it? Was it B- really BBC early, Amstrad? It was an early Sega, and it was saved to cassette tape, yep. magnetic tape, and uh, yeah, we wrote some. We wrote a couple of games in that. Had no idea what we were typing in. We just copied it line for line. Turned a couple of sprites out. Yeah, there were some sprites. <laughs> sprites didn't quite turn out as they looked <laughs> in the book. As it, as it looked like on the cover, but yeah, we we did some text-based games that worked the treat. Yeah, terrific. And so, as you grew up, you were interested in maths and and uh, studied electrical and computer engineering. And then I studied multimedia. Okay, that wasn't until '99. So I wasn't really actually wasn't into that much of the development early on. And so what drew you to multimedia? You did that at Swinburne? Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, it was a mixture of, um, uh, what do they say, um, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I dropped out of university and I was just sort of hanging out and then I actually learned that I was going to become a father at 22 and so I had to make some very <laughs> quick quick and sudden decisions. Yep. And I thought, well, I was good enough at computers. Multimedia sounded very exciting at the time. Yep. In 1999 when I enrolled in that course at Swinburne, it was the first year there was they invented a Bachelor of Multimedia and we were the first year of students that actually enrolled. We okay. were the, the first ones to ever do it. And there's... Being a point, I mean, you know, you talk about the, the computer science as more of that dry kind of uh, 
technical side of it. And there's been a this preconceived notion of engineers and coders as nerds with uh, regressive social skills. I mean, I'm sure you've seen a bit of that, but what do you actually say to that now and, and the change that's happened in this space? There's a recognition of the, the qualities in, the, in the, the kind of thinking that programmers do well. There's a, a, an understanding that, you know, a, a particularly sort of logical um, atomic style of thinking actually works really well in certain contexts. It certainly works well when you're having to talk to a computer. Yeah, right, yeah. And being able to talk to the computers these days is more important than ever. The other side of it, though, is there's another aspect of tech and the kind of business side of tech. In some ways, I see it as sort of, it's kind of in parallel with the role of the programmers. So you leave uni and you get a job developing tech, um, how did you find working for other companies? Um, one of the things that drew me to uh, multimedia and, and which I still like about the digital industry, particularly in comparison with having – I did work as an engineer in some pretty major industrial sort of, you know, companies that built mines or, you know, did yep. heavy manufacturing stuff. And the culture of digital companies does tend to be uh, a bit more relaxed, they're more creative, there's more scope for sort of coming up with unique solutions to problems. And so once I sort of moved into that sort of scene, and I only, I, I did work for agencies doing web development yeah. mainly. I didn't go and get a corporate IT job and I didn't really want one and I kind of knew where I wanted to get to and you know it was kind of great and also the pace at which things were changing I mean I I tried to enter the industry at a particularly bad time it was just after the tech 2000s yeah yeah just after the early 2000s 2003 and I remember trying to get jobs and people were just saying sorry buddy you've chosen the worst time to try and get into this and just as when I started the course, it was like the best time to get into it. But, you know, I made my way into a little web agency and, you know, that experienced really rapid growth and I was really happy to be part of that. And you grew into a, a team leader at uh, one of these agencies. I mean, what, what is it about your makeup that makes you a leader? Yeah, that's a, that's a funny story. I joined the company as a junior programmer and it was really small at the time. And the end of my first week, the, the team leader said, I'm resigning, and they were gone. <laughs> and then they moved somebody else into the role, and four weeks later that person resigned. And I actually just went and walked into the boss's office. I'd been working for five weeks. This was my first job, and I said, make me the team leader. So said, I can do this. And he, he took a part. And I, I, I went from graduate to head of the development team in about five weeks. <laughs> and we grew that team. I mean, that company went from 15 people to 100 people. So let me, let me go back to the moment before you walked into the boss's <laughs> office. And I mean, it's all great to be gung-ho, but somewhere in your brain you've gone, I actually think I can do this. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, or wanted to do it. I always saw my, my, my specialty was being able to be the person that can talk to all of the technical people Yep. and actually do the technical work at a level that at which they'll respect me 
doing the work, but also be somebody who can talk, talk to, to the business. Talk to the business yeah. side, including the, the, the external, actually talk to the clients, but just as importantly speak to all of the other parts of the business. Yeah. So I was always sort of saw, saw my role, my specialty in bridging that gap. And funnily enough, if you fast forward to now and they talk about who the most important person in a tech company is, that is the person, the product lead, the interface between the business and the tech is now considered the most important person at a a tech company. So you're ahead of the curve. So what about the design aesthetic and and user interface? So you did multimedia. Um, What is your experience like there? Um, I've I've got quite strong opinions about um, what makes for a good user interface, but that's actually one area where I've also learnt to... I've learnt where the limits of my capabilities end. And I think it's really important, especially with design, because everybody has an opinion about design, everyone. You never have clients reviewing code and saying, the polymorphism here is a bit (laughs) poor, you know, wouldn't an interface be better than an inheritance pattern? Whereas everyone has an opinion about the design. Everyone will have something to say. And tried my hand at design a number of times and I'm okay. I'll, I'll produce something passable. But most of the time I've learned to just say this is what I want it to do yep. And um, but somebody else is better than me at actually coming up with that visual design. And you, you actually touch on a fascinating thing when you talk about your clients and, you know, most people who get involved in apps and technology businesses, they understand the design and the problem-solving nature of what they're trying to achieve with a design, but we have no idea how it all hangs together at the back end. I mean, really, for most of us, it's a black box. And so anyone who can, again, sit between the business and these technical uh, developers is a very um, unique asset. So in 2004, you take your skills and you start to freelance a bit. Um, was this your first exposure to being your own boss? Oh, maybe. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I feel like I always had something going on the side. I always find that fascinating with tech that you can actually do it. You can be a, a, a capable service provider on the weekends from your bedroom. Yeah. Um, but I was always doing things on the side. Had yeah. didn't light a fire you knew it to go, I, I should... Oh, look, I, I always thought that. I was always that. I was always looking to sort of start my own thing. I mean, really, the, the things that were stopping me from starting my own business were more broader life events. I mean, I, I did have kids really young and was trying to sort of raise families and do all of those things, and I didn't have... I didn't quite have the the readiness to sort of start my own business until they were a bit older and I had I had enough sort of certainty to strike out on my own. So let's fast forward to that moment. In about 2011, That's you, right. you then start We Make Apps. Mm-hmm. Um, take me through what actually happened where you decided, yep, going to start a business and did you have a project, a client, or you just... Just came up with a name and said, "Yep, this is what I'm going to do. Put my put my sign up and ready to go." Well, it's 
it's it's a business that I founded with a business partner. We were working together for a web company, and uh, in around 2011, the iPhone had been out for a couple of years, and we thought, this is it. This is this is the future. You know, web's web's dead. It's all going to be apps from now on, and we kind of sort of mounted a little bit of an internal campaign in the agency where we were working, saying this is where we should be heading. And it, it just didn't take on and we thought, oh, okay, we've just got to set ourselves up. So we, we sort of started that business. Um, we, we did have a couple of sort of small projects, but we realised we, we made the decision to set the business up. So you went out with a partner from your agency but with no clients, you just... Well, we didn't actually quit our jobs for a little while. I didn't. My, my business partner did. And then, you know, we, we landed one good project and that was enough. And then we both just quit full-time, quit our day jobs and went full-time on this. Originally, uh, Mark was working in the reading room in the State Library. That was the office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's very... Um Bootstrapped. It was entirely bootstrapped. Yeah, absolutely. So we had no, we had no money at all. We just sort of, we did one tiny job, and then we did a slightly bigger job, and then we got one job that was going to give us enough money to keep the business going for a month or two, um, and we thought that's close enough, and we just jumped in, and then you know managed to sort of get a few. Decent projects. There was one real turning point project for us that um, we just sort of we were. I, I think we were. It was a quite a bit of luck there. I mean, I think we put in a really great pitch, which was a food trucks app for the city of Sydney. Yeah, and then that got picked up by Apple and featured on their. It was app of the year for 2012, and and that was a big boost for us. That helps. And then suddenly we had this established client and a really successful app, and then it all just started rolling in from there. Was there any point before uh, app, of the, app of the Year with Apple where you, you know, in these types of businesses you've got to win businesses all the time to keep the lights on? You're only as good as your last project. Yeah. So was there any time during this period where you went, oh, my God, what have I done? Or did you transform into a natural pitcher and salesperson? Yeah, yeah, there was some. There was some. It, it was. It was pretty lean there for. Uh, there was a few lean months there, um, where we were like, "Oh, is this actually going to pull off?" But I think. I think we had some pretty sort of, pretty firm sense of self confidence that we were going to pull it off, and our, our whole approach has always been exactly that: that you you are only as good as your last project. So. We we try to just sort of trade on our reputation. We yeah. Just try to do a really good job. And um, hope there's referrals from that. Yes, um, we've we've spent a hundred dollars on advertising since, since 2011. Tried some Google ads once, and that was it. Well, probably back in 2011, hundred dollars <laughs> in Google ads went a long way. But yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, some people don't like the term being bandied around, but you know, you are essentially an entrepreneur. Um, was that a natural thing? You know, or getting into your own business, something you always wanted to do or it's just grown with you and you've grown into that kind of role? Oh, I didn't feel like, no, it's like putting on the shoes that fit for the first time in your life. It felt completely natural. Yeah. Almost immediately. Yep. It was, I, 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 I would struggle to 
have to go and work for someone else now. What about all the other things that come with it? Managing staff, admin, payroll, finance, HR. Um, again, these are things that you don't have to worry about when you've got a job. How, how did you grow into these things? People always raise that. Whenever people talk about, you know, we sort of get sniffs of businesses saying they'll come and help us out with these sorts of things. And we'll take all of those boring <laughs> things off your hands. And I'm like, why are they the boring things? Like the finance, knowing about exactly where every dollar is going in your business. Like surely that's that's the most important thing. Why it's would you the want story of the business? Why would you want anyone else to do that? And the same with staff. Like I don't know if I would. I, I don't really want to trust anyone else to hire my staff. They're my staff. I want to, you know, I want to make those decisions. I want to be the one who sort of, you know, helps them grow into the pe- people they are. Now, all of those. Aspects of the business that aren't, say, you, you would look at someone in my line of work that's not writing code, say. Um, no, for me that's like... Uh, and that's that's why I asked the question because some people are brilliant and love the, the technician side of their business. So in your case, the code writing, and this is something they resent because it detracts from what you love so much. Oh, no, for me that's... That's, that's the stuff that makes up a business. And to think of it as boring miss, for me misses the point in if you do those things, and you not, not so much do them right, but if you do them in your own particular way, you actually create this whole multi-textured business that's so much more than just the code that it gets, that gets yeah, written. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's like an extension of yourself, of your personality yeah so i mean i i i've never been afraid of filling out forms happy to fill out forms and we've always sort of kept a lot of that stuff really close to our ourselves and tried to do we try to do so many things in our business ourselves so what about looking back do you go do you ever think i wish i'd done this differently with the any mistakes that you go i'm definitely learning from that experience Oh yeah, we've 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 made a couple of bad calls. Hitching yourself to a particular piece of technology, and you rely on a piece of tech, a third-party piece of technology too much, which either turns out to be flawed or what happened to us recently, they just announced they're switching it off. San Francisco startup has had millions of dollars worth of funding. Ah, oh, it's not working out. We're just switching it off. And you've got apps built completely on these stacks and then, you know, what do you do? And it's, it's, it's bad for us. It's absolutely brutal for our clients because, you know, what do they do? They've, they've, they've paid to get this app built, built on this technology and now they don't. Uh, we have to sort of re-spend, they have to spend all of this money just to maintain, just to tread water. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a horrible situation actually. Yeah, so um, we're pretty wary of, after being burnt a couple of times, we're quite wary of relying too much on untested technology. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it is a challenge in a fast-moving environment mm-hmm. um, where something, you know, comes along, maybe plug and play to some extent and it works really well. Yeah. You wouldn't be the first person to uh, have had that happen to them. Oh, it's the, it's the story. It's what's... <laughs> most common story out there you know I mean, we try to one of the things we try to do is not rely on too many third-party tools which means 
you know, in some ways our projects take a little bit longer to build because we're not just clicking together all of these off-the-shelf things. We're, we're writing some of that code ourselves where we could be using third-party components. And this is the, and this is the, uh, the challenge, I guess, for a customer, customer to understand. You might come in a little bit more expensive but not reliant on third-party applications or plugins. Someone else comes in cheap and they're reliant and the customer goes down that path and then three years later, lo and behold, Cheap is expensive and expensive is cheap. Mm. So um, you've said before you don't, you know, go out market too much to new clients. So how do you ensure this quality that brings in referrals? Is there, is there a methodology or process you, you have? I, I, can't, I can't sort of encapsulate it in, in a sort of secret source, you know. The same with we, we follow agile development methodologies here, though not strictly they're pretty loose it's it's more about a sort of i think you you kind of engender a culture of quality DNA, within the business yeah. and software's hard apps in particular it's really really hard to get this stuff right and you just need to sort of keep everybody it, it'll never be right the first time it won't even be right the 10th time you've got to keep on refining it and refining it and so kind of creating a, a a sense within the business where the, the people that are working on the products that we create, whether they're doing the design, or the development, or the testing, or managing the projects, just sort of develop that feeling like, oh, we, we, we all of us have to keep looking at this product and making it better and better and better and um, kind of going beyond meeting the client's requirements and actually start to sort of, you know, everyone's encouraged to constantly find things in the app when you're doing it and you know, make, tell someone else to go back and fix that. We try. We have this idea of follow through, where we'll we'll be pushing to hit a, a delivery milestone. And we've launched the app, send the final invoice, and we've learned that we can't stop. We have to spend <laughs> that extra two weeks fixing all of the things that were small enough that we were good enough to go live. Client needed to get their launch, do their PR launch. We have to do that follow-through because if we don't straight away, you'll never get around to it. I think also there's a, a great misconception with people who come along with a startup or even a business that wants to build a new app that they don't realise the extent they're creating a, a living thing that has a life, it has a lifeblood, it needs to be kept alive. I call mm. it. I used to call it the, the men or man principle. It needs to be maintained. So that includes, you know, someone in San Francisco saying, or we've got an update to our stack and you need to make the app work around that. You get enhancements because you get clients who say, oh, if we could do that or we could integrate with Stripe or whatever, so you're then enhancing it. And then sometimes you need to create something completely new and that's the, the last bit where you go, I either need to rebuild the whole thing because it's you know something different than what I envisaged and I've created a business or an ecosystem around it. It's just not, you can't, put a full stop at the end of an app, can you? Oh, no. no I, most software is like that. Um, but especially especially user-facing software. If you the software you create has a, has a rich UI screen that's presented to the general public, so thousands of users, tens, hundreds of thousands of users, then that thing is going to need constant work to yep. keep it going. Yep. So in that sort of backdrop, 
I mean, what's been the biggest change to uh, app building that you've seen in the last 15, 16 years? Smartphone app development, which really, it's really only 10 years, 12 years old. Um, so those building native apps, um, that was as somebody who'd been working in web development for more than 10 years prior to then, it, it was a whole different shift in terms of it, it, it was a, it was a paradigm shift in the way people use technology. I think mostly just because of the kind of, it feels like a strange word, but it's the intimacy that people have with those devices. Suddenly they're not um, it's kind of when you're working on a desktop computer, it's a little bit, you know, sitting at a desk, maybe, you know, take it. People do their work on their laptops in various places, but it's not like having a phone. Yeah. It's not like having this little thing like right up close to you. And the user experience changed as well. Um, we went away from this idea of sort of building these digital screens that sort of provided lots of information and lots of buttons to being really sort of task-focused and narrow yep. and, and all about sort of ease and simplicity. Journey. Yeah. And just in terms of the way the sort of the feel of the software changed and suddenly, you know, they were all it was really gestural and it was really tactile and you were touching this screen yep. and, you know, getting, you know, pretty cold code to behave like that and make people feel like they're doing these you know, using these apps that kind of understand them and work intuitively. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's been a real shift. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of, you know, that carries on to this day. We're still kind of working through this new way of dealing with software and it's, you know, it's, it's fun. You create really interesting things. I hadn't even thought about it at all until you started talking about it, but the difference between using a pointer on a mouse on a desktop to swiping with your fingers, using a chatbot. Uh, I mean, <laughs> the avenues to interact with an app are uh, unbelievable. Yeah. But we used to be sort of have these conversations and clients would be like, well, we can't decide. Do we want a website or do we want a native app? Why would we want to make this thing that's often, you know, what, twice the price, you know? And I was always like, well, once you get your app on that person's phone, you know, your little piece of software is there when the person wakes up every morning. Yeah, yeah. Last thing they see when they go to bed. It's sort of once you're sort of in on that device, and even just the whole ecosystem that the platform providers have created to get this software on those devices, you become really close to your users in in a way that no software has been in the past. And I mean, has it reached a point of saturation for me as a user? I mean, I still download apps, but they're a lot fewer and far between than in the early heady days where I download, you know, 10 a week to try them out. Now it's maybe one one a month or one every two months. I mean, is, is it slowed down or are you still seeing a huge amount of app development? I mean, our business hasn't slowed down. I don't know. It feels, has it got to saturation point? I mean, possibly, but God, even just keeping the apps we've got going, it's yeah. still it's it's still moving so fast. Yeah. The whole industry is moving so fast. And you know, there's an arms race between the platform providers to just make these devices, you know, ridiculously high powered and compact and your smartphone of today is 
as powerful as your top of the line laptop of just three, two or three years ago. Is that right? Oh yeah, it's frightening. They're, they're really high end computing devices now. So and what it, you can do with them keeps keeps expanding. So let me get into, if I can, the nitty gritty of apps and, and development. I mean, you've got incredible clients ranging from small business to government agencies. Um, let's say I've got a business idea. I hear MVP, MVP. What does it mean? The idea is your minimum viable product. And it's what what's the the of all of the things that you imagine your your amazing app is going to be able to do, what are the core things that it has to do so that it's useful for users and kind of moves your business forward? I always when I'm dealing with people who who have a have a startup idea and it's a significant part of our business. Um People will start, they'll often start with a, a great little kernel of an idea and then over time they'll be sort of thinking about their idea and putting together documents and they tend to add all of these Blue bits to sky. it. Yeah, and they <laughs> add all of these pe- pieces to it. And I always say, and often people will come to me with this, oh, it's going to do this, it'll have this video chat component here <laughs> and you know, you'll earn points by doing that piece and then you'll be able to donate them to a bunch of charities that we choose. And they will oh, gamify it. This is all great. <laughs> And I always say, you know, just you need to go through that process because there will be some great ideas there as well. And you sort of put all of that, all of those ideas up on the wall and then you just have to sort of identify what are the, what's the really great thing we're doing here. Not to say you won't do these other things later on, but what's the, the kernel of this idea and let's focus on that. And I hear people talk then um Maybe it's just fluff, minimum delightful product, MDP rather than MVP. I mean, is it essential to build a delightful product on top of the features that actually move the business forward? I think so. Yeah. I think that the execution of an idea is in many ways more important than the idea itself in terms of whether it's going to be successful or not. Yeah. There's a... There's an idea that one of the best ways to come up with a great new app is to just find an area where there are heaps of existing apps and just do it better. Yeah. Just take somebody else's idea and just execute it better. Yeah. It makes sense. And often if if there's a proven market for something, just come in and, and, and do it better than anyone else has done before. Yeah. It doesn't have to be apps. could be making soap. could be anything. Yeah, you can yeah. do it better, you can do it smarter. Um, yeah. A lot of opportunities. I mean, the advantage with apps is, you know, people complain about the levelness of the playing field, but, you know, at the end of the day, your app's on the app store next to everyone else's. It's distribution now is no longer the barrier. Yes. Marketing's the barrier, getting noticed is a barrier, but the actual logistics of getting your software in the hands of users, that, that that's a solved problem. Yeah. Yeah, again, thinking back to 15 years ago when I first started my tech business, there was only a handful of ways to build the code and distribute it. Mm. And now, you know, it seems so democratised in some respects on how to distribute. Exactly. What about budget? I mean, you know, people come and have these incredible ideas, I'm sure. Um, do, do, Do people need to start with a certain amount of money that's realistic to get to market with a product? Yes. 
yes, the process of writing this, this software for apps is fiendishly complex. Yeah. It's a difficult business and you're writing for different devices. It's, it's, it's really hard to do well. Um, and it requires specialist skills, so you have to anticipate that you'll be paying sort of professional services fees. So I'll put you on the, the spot here then. So if I've got a small business and a couple of clients and I want to build a native app, um, the choices I'd have are work with a company, we make apps, or maybe bring some developers in-house. Well, why go outsource? Well, Or when then? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a really good question. I'm not even sure how to say it without just sounding like I'm blowing my own trumpet here. Be self-serving. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe that you're essentially just bringing somebody in to build you, uh, uh, provide you a service for your business. Now, it's, it, it, we sort of look at analogies with, you know, other, other people that, other services that you might use. You know, if you were, I don't know, um, setting up your, extending your, your, your factory, would you hire a bunch of builders to build that annex? Or would you hire a building company to come in and just do it for you? Now, if the core part of your business was, you know, extending out this factory and that was going to be something you were doing all the time, you know, kind of maybe it does make sense to actually hire your own developers. Yes, there's a there's a there's a path which, um, especially for sort of the startup uh, way of doing business, where you you engage a, an agency to help you build that minimum viable product, and maybe you know versions one point one, one point two, one point three. If you can get that technology built, which is often you know the 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 fastest bit of investment into your technology, suddenly you need a team of five people working on this thing. Okay, you've got it up and running. Now we just want to keep it going. Yep. Um, maybe we do want to move that in-house. Yes, yep. And it's, it's, it's happened to one of our clients and we were, we were sort of, you know, really happy for them. They, they, we helped them build this technology That was up. successful. Yeah. So if you get to the point where, you know, You've got so much work to do on your app and your app is a core part of your business. Yeah, take it in-house by all means. The difference is you do get a lot of businesses that um, and organisations that, you know, they want to invest a bit of technology into yep. an app and then there'll be an ongoing tale of support and maintenance but there's not enough work for an in-house development team. They, it, they did the work, they got it up and running and now they just have to sort of keep running it. And now... You know, earlier on in the piece you talked about no one reviews code. I mean, no one's got the technical expertise to review your code. Um, how does someone know that the company they're working with or even their in-house team is actually writing clean code and, uh, you know, efficient code and writing something that's uh, future-proof to some extent? Oh, God, you know, like <laughs> I try to imagine not understanding technology like the way I do and then being tasked to get an app built, you know, Jesus, it's, it's, it's really, really hard, yeah. you know. And the problem with this industry is it doesn't have the kinds of regulations that you get in construction yep. or manufacturing, yep. you know. There, there aren't. If, if you engage a company to build your app, and they get sort of, you know, 80% of the way there and it doesn't work and then they just walk away, 
there's not much you can do about that. Um, it's 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 really tough, and because it's moving so fast, and yeah, but you, you, I, I I hear horror stories all the time. People, I I started getting this app built two years ago. It's still not finished. I've seen dozens of them at Marketplace Ventures. And it actually, you, again, I never thought about it like that before, but if you build someone a house and it falls down in 12 months, I mean, you've got a responsibility to make good, um, those, even those, years down the track. Those sectors are, are, are regulated and, and software development, you know, especially Be, ca- especially be careful apps. what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not... Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I'm, I'm putting myself in the shoes on the other side of the yeah, yeah. the relationship here. How do you know if somebody does a good job? Ask their previous clients. Yeah. You know, that's what you do. And actually ask, get phone numbers and call people that have worked with these businesses before. Yeah. And just hear it firsthand. That's great there's, advice. There's, there's, no, there's no better thing than actually being able to talk to a real person worked with the business in the past. This is an old school technique <laughs> called picking up the telephone and asking a referee. That's that's right. That's right. I, I just sort of and I guess that's also that's that's how we win business. I mean our quotes come with, you know, half a dozen people that you can call. Yep. And if you want more I can I can keep forwarding you more names of people. And we try to keep the businesses that we work with long term and we work with them from a long time. Yep. And, you know, some of them probably sick of getting called up about well, Customer advocacy is the best uh, the best way to win business. Yeah. And to find out whether you're dealing with fly-by-nighters, which in your industry there there is a lot, mm. and there are also a lot of people who I've seen, as you say, projects 80% complete who haven't been able to get the project to its final position and it leaves people financially hurt um, and really up up the creek without a paddle because someone having to come back and look through all that code and start building on top of it, it's almost impossible, isn't it? Oh, no, we've inherited quite a few oh, projects. Sometimes sometimes our assessment is to knock it down and start again. Sometimes we pick it up. It's always a kind of like difficult story. Oh, I had this great idea and I sunk all of this money into it. And to be so close to having something and it still just doesn't even work. It's horrible. Well, as I alluded to, I've done some work with uh, startups in the past. So for some of the listeners to preempt some of the traps, um, I'd love to get your views on the following. Um, what assumptions do people make wrongly or rightly when they come to you about roles and responsibilities? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, I'm not sure that there are too many wrong assumptions because everybody's going to come to their... Um, their their idea of starting up their own business with some of their own assumptions. Um, I think that you're not wrong to assume, you know, you should be sceptical of what you're being told by your vendor. You should sort of try to educate yourself as much as possible. The more understanding and knowledge you have about what it is you're trying to do, the better. So... um, And do you think that helps get more out of you as developers when someone comes in and they've got all this knowledge about the space? In general, yes. Yep. And there's obviously exceptions and people think they know one thing and, you know, then they ignore what could be good <laughs> advice. But in general, yeah, I think, I think that makes sense. It's wrong to assume that 
all you need to do is get your app built and then it will you'll just be, it'll take off you'll be Mark Zuckerberg yeah the the hardest part of the process is often after the app's live actually getting people to use it if you've got any kind of startup that requires a kind of critical mass of users getting up to that critical mass is really really difficult um, even more so if you if your startup uh, is, is a marketplace where there's buyers and sellers and when you've got that sort of app I mean you need both sides of the ledger um, at a critical mass otherwise nobody's interested yep you probably need a bit of a bigger checkbook than you thought yeah or the, the other thing is that start selling your idea now. to your users straight away yeah Straight away. So, I mean, we've had people come to us with, you know, they're like, oh, they've got an idea for this app and we're going to be sort of selling it into corporates. And they spend, the first thing they do is come up with this glossy PowerPoint presentation um, and they, they're just out there getting people interested in it right right from the start because don't wait until your technology is built before you start marketing. Yeah, it's true. Um, what about uh, the hosting side of it? I mean, I come in and I've, the app's built um, and I've assumed that it's going to be hosted somewhere or I haven't even thought about it. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? It, you, you'll be paying for it, you know, expect to pay, I don't know, anywhere from $100 a month for something really small up to 1000 If your app takes off, expect to pay more. So leave a bit of cash in the bank to keep it alive. Yeah, yeah, but... In the bigger scheme of things, it's a pretty moderate part of your expense. Yeah. I'd be expecting you'd be spending more marketing your app. Yep. We'll certainly be paying more if you have any staff than you will be to pay for a bunch of servers yep. up at AWS. Yep. You have to have somebody knowledgeable to look after them. But, yeah, I mean, hosting and all of those services is one of those areas of technology that's becoming, you know, so much of – there's so many – service providers providing extremely high-quality um, infrastructure these days. That used to be quite a business, managing your service. Yeah. You'd, have a, you'd have a little rack. Some, you'd have a rack. You'd have some rack space down at uh, down in South Melbourne and you have to go and, yeah, so you don't have to, a lot of that stuff. All in the cloud. Oh, yeah, and that makes it pretty pretty easy. What about the complex and shared code? Because there's multiple platforms. There's, you know, you might have a web front end, um, you might have an Apple app and an Android one as well. How much of this code is shared and how much do I have to uh, pay extra to have it, this app existing in all these different places now? Well, now you've, you've, you've walked right into the middle of the, all of the biggest arguments amongst app developers. What's the best framework to build your app in? Um, we... We have this discussion. We've got our own opinions. We use Xamarin. Um, but we have this discussion all the time with um, clients who are considering different sorts of which framework are they going to build their technology on. I, I, I've got my opinions. I think some are better than others. But I think regardless of which of those sort of technology platforms you use, the people who are actually writing the code on that platform, that's where your your biggest risk is in terms of things going wrong or you having to pay 
more than you expect. Yeah. Because they all ultimately they all do pretty much the same thing with some exceptions. Um, and, you know, a, an app that's well-written regardless of the platform will still be usable and achieve its goals and yep. make users happy. Yeah. How long does an app take to build from conception to MVP? Oh, I always, my, my standard answer is four to six months. <laughs> and when they say, how much does it cost? I say about as much as, I used to say about as much as a car. And they'd say, well, what kind of car? And I'm, well, it depends what kind of app you want. Yeah. You know, but the, the cheapest you're going to pay is if, if you, you, you're not going to get anything for less than $20,000. Yep. More like if you want something sort of big and fancy, I think 50 to 80. If you're really thinking big, you expect to pay a couple of hundred grand, three hundred thousand dollars. I mean, and that's we're still a medium-sized player. I mean, the big apps are six hundred thousand to a million. Yeah, that's that's pretty. That's not unheard of. You know, they don't get don't get much bigger than that just for the actual smartphone apps. You know, we're not building sort of enterprise-wide sort of SAP systems here. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask about that. I mean, what sort of stuff gets you and your team excited? Um, <laughs> I mean, if I wanted to build something really complex like uh, machine learning integrated to a couple of mainframes with a nice uh, analytics front end and dashboard, I mean, is that is that exciting stuff? Yeah, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's exciting. It's, you know, different things. I, I, it, truly, the thing that really gets us excited is the variety. Yeah. Everything's quite different. Sometimes the app's quite small, but the what it's doing is sort of like beautiful and, and unique. You know, it's a really great project to work on. Sometimes those those apps that do have a really narrow focus but just do it really well are really fun to work on. We've done quite a lot of hardware integrated apps, yep. so apps that communicate Bluetooth. We've got ones USB plugged in apps. Yep, that stuff's always fun. We've got yep. an app that. You plug in a, a thermal imaging camera and you can sort of see all of the, you know, the missing th- insulation in your ceiling. We've got an app that you... Oh, that's cool. got an app that connects to this little computer that's in the engine bay of your four-wheel drive and can switch on the lights and change the tyre pressure and yeah. all of this sort of stuff. We've had apps to control pool pumps. We've got an app that lets you start the kiddie rides in the shopping centres. That's quite a beautiful piece of technology when you build this app. I remember the first time I did it and actually just being able to walk up to a children's ride, just press a button on my phone. That is a great idea. Yeah. It's, it's, In a cashless society. Yeah. Who carries who carries the, 20 cent pieces anymore? Well, $2 coins. <laughs> Sorry, I'm showing my age. <laughs> I was going to say a five cent piece. 20 cent pieces. They're not yeah. 20 cents anymore for one of those rides. So some, some, there's something great about that when we uh, – I, I really enjoy the apps where we build some software, but it actually does something in the real world. Yeah. That's that's been really fun. Bring it to life. Yeah, we've we've had sort of we've built a bunch of apps where we've built a few apps for government, and um, they can be kind of satisfying because there there isn't a profit motive at the end of it. They're actually like, okay, we've got some budget, we need to give something to our community and we're going to deliver this service to our community via some software yeah. in a smartphone app. Yeah. And when you do that really well and people respond and people are like, 
love this app that you made, government. Yeah. Now, how often does that happen? Yeah, I mean, so, that's fantastic. And I suppose the logical extension of that is you must see some startups come through with some incredible ideas and you go, wow, I really want to be a part of that. Ever consider reducing your fees to take some equity or get involved at, a, at the next level? We, we haven't. We don't do that. And I, I, I somehow sort of feel it, it feels like as soon as you make that decision, then you should really be making that app and essentially let everything else go. It's very, I feel like it's very hard to sort of have those split decisions, yeah. you know. Um, we, we haven't done that. I know that there's, there, there was a model, a business model out there for a while of these app development plus finance companies and you'd go to the company and you'd take a loan and then immediately spend the money you just borrowed with the app company getting your app built. Great business model for, <laughs> for the finance company. For the finance company. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it's such a thing to take on to the, the, the the one thing I do find about so many of the, the people that come to us with startup ideas is they're deeply, deeply invested personally as well as financially in these projects. Yeah. They really, the, the, the ones that sort of get to that point of actually starting to get created, I mean, they've had to sort of pour so much of themselves into it. And I think... Um, Somebody that just sort of goes, well, that's a good idea. I might jump into that because I think I'll make a buck out of it. Probably isn't going to share the same dedication as the actual owner of that idea. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, it's a big commitment to make, so you've got to love love it to get to the point of throwing your hard-earned into it. Yeah. We're going to uh, try and finish off with a, a bit of a quick fire round. Who's your favourite comedian? James A. Kessler. Tennis player? Uh, Martina Navratilova. Favorite artist? Uh, Lucian Freud. Fondest childhood memory? Body surfing. Where? South Coast, New South Wales. Most memorable smell? Um, banana cake. Yum. <laughs> Who is the person, dead or alive, you would most like to have lunch with? Gwyneth Dunberg at the moment. What's next for Mick Burton? Um, more apps. Mick, thank you very much for your time, your insights, and uh, thank you very much for being on Discipline. Fantastic. It's great. It's a pleasure. <laughs>